Our fave Olivia Rodrigo tracks, the first Indigenous and bisexual bachelorette, Demi Lovato comes out as non-binary, and a New York Times ad that targets the Hadid sisters and Dua Lipa for speaking out about Palestine. We're Jasmine and Maggie, and you're listening to Culture Club. This is our weekly chat about pop culture, current affairs, the internet, and our lives. We acknowledge that the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we live, work and record this podcast episode. As always, we would like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Maggie, the question that I'm sure many, many listeners want to know is... What are your top three songs off the Olivia Rodrigo Sour album? This is easy for me. And I am I am loving reading everybody's top threes. I totally judge people seeing what they say. I think it's so interesting seeing the range. Anyway, let me t- tell you mine. My top three are Happier, Jealousy, Jealousy, and Hope You're Okay. And Aww. what did you say? What did you reply to my Instagram story when I posted that? I said your Pisces sun is showing. Literally. Your water cry baby. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. And I actually, um, even though you told me I predicted your favorite song, Brutal, mm-hmm. the opening track. Of course. I heard the opening track and I actually haven't really gotten past it yet. <laughs> I've just had <laughs> Brutal on repeat for like three days now. I love it so much. Could also be because... I don't know, just the sad songs. I'm like, it's just too sad right now. I can't deal with that. (laughs) I need Mm. something that's like teen angst, angry at the world. Um, So, yeah, I'm still listening to Brutal and Good For You. I think I'll get to the slower songs soon though. But, yeah, Mm. so amazing. What a great debut. It's like huge pop culture news. I feel so proud of her. Oh, me too. Um, back to brutal for one second. I also love it. It is creeping up in my top three, but, um, Tom, uh, Tom also listened to the whole album and he was like, this song is so familiar. And we just couldn't pick up for ages. We did a little Google. Someone had done an article about it because it sounds like the song voodoo child. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> Thank God. I just have to sing. If you play them side by side, this is totally fine because, you know, songs are inspired by each other. I'm not saying it to call out Olivia, but it was so cool to just kind of realize that because they've got the same, um, like, but fun musical fact, Voodoo Child by the Rogue Traders sampled that from an Elvis Costello (gasps) song. Yeah. So that like it's sample of a sample. So I think she must have had to sample the Elvis Costello song it's called Mm. Pump It Up if you wanted to hear um because that's what I thought of first as well and I sent it to my parents because they used to work in the music industry Mm. and I was like did did you think they had to pay Elvis Costello for this and my mum was like uh yeah otherwise he would have sued her like it's so identical it's that no 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 bit so yeah there you go it's full of samples you are full of pop culture and music knowledge that actually just blew my mind and then yeah I saw that she um also sampled or borrowed from don't know what the correct word is from a Taylor Swift song and I'm pretty sure Taylor Swift and Jack Antonoff were were like mm-hmm. credited yes. for the song what is it two steps forward one step backwards yeah three steps 
uh, wait, one step forward, three steps backwards. (laughs) (laughs) We're just like doing a little dance with our steps. I am so happy to see all this Olivia paraphernalia and just everyone going wild over her because that's what she deserves. Yeah, I can't get enough. So I actually started watching High School Musical, the musical, the series. I've just, I'm just one episode in. Have you seen it? No, is it good? Yeah, I mean, It's actually quite interesting because it takes a Mickey out of itself. So, for instance, there's one line. It's like a mini documentary, so they kind of have cuts to the people talking to the camera and whatnot. Um, But, you know, one of the PE teachers is like, yeah, I support the arts. I pay for ad-free Spotify. Like it's got little quips like that that kind of – you know, it doesn't take itself too seriously Mm. or whatever. So I'm I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I heard it's quite meta like because they're – in a musical in a school they're doing high school musical in a high school as a musical it is confusing that's why we're like jumbling all over our words because it is set at a high school that high school musical was filmed but it's like the legit high school that's like a normal high school so they're putting on a production of high school musicals a musical where high school musical was filmed (laughs) oh I'm never saying this this was terrible (laughs) no that sounds I think I saw the trailer once. Mm. Um, we talked about it. Oh, I was thinking I had that conversation with someone else. Whoopsie. Wow. It was on the podcast. We've already covered this. I know. <laughs> okay. I just also with the Olivia Rodrigo album, Good For You also is like sampling Misery Business by Paramore. There's been a awesome. lot of mashups on TikTok of the backing track and like mixing the two together. So like that's another one that made me want to relive my teenage years. I was a big Paramore fan. Were you? No, Were I didn't have that young? like, hey, <laughs> no, I didn't have that like edgy kind of emo or goth phase really. So I'm, I'm sorry. I was just thinking of, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, when I was up in Queensland when I was staying at my family's, um, Decode by Paramore, like the song from Twilight came on YouTube, um, in the lounge. I was like, Oh, such a good song. And my sister was like, This song just reminds me of your first period. <laughs> Even though it was like years after, um, which is like so much teen angst, like you were just like emo in your room, like listening to Paramore. That is so funny. I actually love that. And you know what? It sounds like we planned this out, but perfect segue because we just want to say a thank you to Scarlett for sponsoring this episode. We love talking about periods. How perfect is this? So Scarlett is an Australian period care brand aiming to make our cycles more sustainable and refine the period experience while crying to Paramore. So thank you. Brooke Blurton has made history as Australia's first Indigenous and queer bachelorette. So for those who don't know, Brooke is a 26-year-old Nunga Yamaji youth worker who was on a previous season of The Bachelor as well as Bachelor in Paradise. Speaking to ABC Radio, she said, I do feel a bit of pressure and a bit of responsibility. Obviously, I have a cultural background and I'm really proud of that, but I do know that I don't represent every single person as every person's experience is so different. Brooke is also the first bisexual bachelorette, so that means that men and women will be able to apply as contestants, which is a first. How do we feel about this? Do you watch The Bachelorette or The Bachelor? 
Yeah, well, I used to watch The Bachelor quite a lot, especially in high school. Um, very, very enjoyable, very fun for me. But I just kind of dwindled the last few years. I just haven't been clicking because honestly, The Bachelors and Bachelorettes weren't just that interesting to me. Did you ever watch? Never. Um, not on it for any reason in particular. I wasn't really raised on reality TV or anything. Like I've never seen Big Brother or anything. But I remember we studied it, lol. Really? Um, in my degree at RMIT doing media, um, we I did a course called like TV, pop culture and TV or something. And we looked at the format of it, mm. which I found so interesting. I find it fascinating, but um, I think I actually might watch this this version because it is a first she seems like a really lovely girl and I am hoping that the contestants will also be just as diverse oh yeah such a good point um Brooke is awesome so I see what she's up to on social media quite a bit and she does a lot of like mental health work and works with youth I mean kind of mentioned that before she's a youth worker so I'm halfway through her TEDx talk and she speaks on being an indigenous woman but also feeling not Aboriginal enough or not white enough to fit in in Australia. So she's super outspoken about her cultural identity. And I think it'll be hopefully really great to see this play out in mainstream TV because, of course, I guess like a lot of us who are progressive and might know her on socials or um, see the work she does, that audience I do think is also different to the audience that just consumes reality tv show or just watches the bachelor mm. so it'll be awesome that she can maybe reach new australians mm, definitely there has been a lot of outcry from audiences for a number of reality tv shows recently where people are just saying like this is so boring mm. like the bachelor and married at first sight um all those tv shows that? that are on all year round yeah love island especially people in Australia have been like, this is starting to get so dull just seeing the same type of person and they'll have like a brunette and they're like, (laughs) oh, look, a different type of person. Mm -hmm. So maybe the producers are finally listening and, yeah, hopefully hopefully this will bring a whole new audience to reality TV. Mm. Well, it's interesting looking over at the US who had their first ever Black Bachelor, Matt James, Um, recently and that is the first black bachelor in 18 years which I just think is oh my god so ridiculous that is you know almost like all my life they've had they've run bachelor um but yeah this was such a first but you might remember hearing about that drama because one of the contestants Rachel Kirkconnell um you know photos emerged of her at a plantation themed party only back in 2018 which is not long ago um, as well as allegations that she had liked photos on social media that included the confederate flags mm. yeah well we even saw we had flex mummy on the podcast a few weeks ago and even she was saying she's the only black contestant in this year's big brother house so yeah i think australia really does have an issue with that australian tv as well yeah and with that you know flex was eliminated in the first two weeks we've just seen australia's rupaul's drag race where the only indigenous queen was first to be eliminated it just feels a little bit off and also in terms of sexuality um it's really great that she's representing bisexuality in the last season of Married at First Sight, which I just watched, um, they did have a bisexual groom for the first time, Liam Cooper. 
And that was good, I think. I think they still, the producers still played it quite safe. And they also used the bisexuality thing as like bait for a few storylines, which was a bit uncomfortable. So I'm hoping that people don't fetishize her, is what I'm trying to say. And we've seen a lot of things come out in previous years about Bachelor contestants um, even suing the channel or just at least complaining about um, being quite like manipulated or it's quite a toxic environment um, being on set and being exploited, I guess, for their storylines and whatnot. So I, I am a little bit nervous um, and it is a bit apprehensive to see how this goes as well. I would be nervous about, like you just said, um, her being fetishized or mistreated just for views um, or to have that kind of clickbaity storyline come about. Apparently on radio there's al- already been a bit of biphobia around this. Australia's mainstream media landscape is not the most progressive. So we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Mm. And just like we've seen with Matt James in the US, Liam Cooper on maths, and now with Brooke Blurton on The Bachelorette, uh, just because we do have diverse people in these positions, it doesn't automatically make the situation woke or progressive. Um, it takes more than just a like performative gesture. It just we'll have to see how mm. the season plays out and how like respectfully they do produce this show. Emmy-winning American actor, singer and style icon Billy Porter has revealed that he has been HIV positive for the last 14 years in a story for The Hollywood Reporter. We'll just play a snippet now. February of 2007, I was diagnosed um, diabetic, type 2 hereditary. Um, March, I was signing bankruptcy papers. And by June, I was HIV positive. Um, You know, my childhood was fraught with a lot of um, religious shaming. Um, Growing up in the Pentecostal church, I was shamed for my behavior, for my attributes, from the minute I could comprehend thought and you know, told I would never be blessed and told that AIDS was God's punishment for gays and all of that that we already know. So watching this video and reading this piece, um, it was really moving, I guess, to see how Billy was speaking about this. You could tell it was very much an emotional issue for him, um, as it should be. Just seeing him open up about being HIV positive when there is still a lot of shame and I guess taboo surrounding it was really, I I keep wanting to use the word inspirational. I don't know if that's right here, but I think he didn't have to share this, but he chose to, which I think makes it powerful. Yeah, definitely. Like even though we know more about AIDS and HIV than ever before, there is still so much stigma left over from the AIDS crisis of the 80s and the 90s. So it's very powerful for him to speak out like this. Especially as a black man as well. I do want to read out another snippet that um, was transcribed by The Hollywood Reporter. There's happiness, yes, the surface joy, but there was also a feeling of dread all day, every day. It wasn't a fear that my status was going to come out or that somebody was going to expose me. It was just a shame that it had happened in the first place. And as a black man, particularly a black man on this planet, you have to be perfect or you will get killed. 
But look at me. Yes, I am the statistic, but I've transcended it. This is what HIV positive looks like now. The truth is the healing, and I hope this frees me. I hope this frees me so that I can experience real, unadulterated joy, so that I can experience peace, so that I can experience intimacy, so that I can have sex without shame. This is for me. I'm doing this for me. So important. And there's not many HIV positive people, I think, with this kind of this level of public platform who are speaking out so candidly about this. And I think it's just so I'm so proud and like so mm. happy for him. I mean, I think it's a big step to destigmatize HIV. Oh, yeah. And in the snippet that we first played, he does talk about one of the biggest hurdles was being judged by the church. And, you know, he had to like telling his own mother was one of the hardest things he did. Um, it was really nice to see her reaction as well. So, you know, I would actually encourage people to read the piece or watch the whole video. I agree that there is, I don't think, like I haven't had much education or had that much information told to me about HIV or AIDS, but it is great to see that I guess this year in particular, I have seen more content produced around this. So for instance, the TV show, It's a Sin, that's now on stand for those in Australia, revolves around this. Um, I know Grace O'Neill, so she's co-host of the After Work drinks podcast she wrote an article for gq called we were going to war every day the remarkable true stories of the survivors who fought australia's war on aids so she kind of focused the attention locally as well i'm glad that this is gaining traction again in 2021 now you and i obviously care a lot about our everyday actions that can make a difference on the planet yeah we love bringing our keep cups for our morning coffees or choosing to shop secondhand when we can but one thing i've also been focusing on more over the last year is making my period care more sustainable too me too and that's why for this episode we're partnering with australian period care brand scarlet While there are a handful of brands out there making periods sustainable, Scarlet is creating fun and modern products that look just as good on your bathroom shelf as they do stashed away in your bathroom drawer. Some of our followers may have seen that I've spoken about Scarlet on my Instagram when I try their waste-free, worry-free period briefs, which are so comfy and so cute and make me feel protected when I'm bleeding. And I've been using their 100% medical grade silicon period cup for the last few months and found it to be super flexible and easy to use, unlike some other period cups out there. So to learn more about Scarlet, head to their Instagram at wearescarlet or find their website scarletperiod.com in our show notes. It's the new period brand for a new kind of period. In more pop culture news, on Twitter this week, the pop star and Disney actress Demi Lovato said, Today is a day I'm so happy to share more of my life with you all. I am proud to let you know that I identify as non-binary and will officially be changing my pronouns to they, them moving forward. This has come after a lot of healing and self-reflective work. I'm still learning and coming into myself, and I don't claim to be an expert or a spokesperson. Sharing this with you now opens another level of vulnerability for me. Spoken about Demi Lovato a few times this on this podcast, but happy for them. 
Like it's very brave to do that with such a public mm. platform. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and in particular, I think Demi's received a lot more backlash than other celebrities who have come out as non-binary or trans. Think Elliot Page, who we talked about when he came out as trans a couple months ago now. Um, I also think about Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye or Sam Smith, the musician. I just feel like I haven't seen this level of, I guess, not exactly scrutiny, but I think doubt, like doubting Demi. I feel like I've seen a lot of mm. that. For instance, the top reply on Demi's tweet was from a conservative reporter named Kyle Becker who said, this doesn't make you hip or edgy. It makes you confusing to deal with and a poor role model for children. Of course, a children card, by the way. And Candace Owens, who said, what is it? Real men don't wear dresses in response to the Harry Styles Vogue cover also spoke out against Demi saying like they, them is just poor grammar we know that i don't even want to say the actual quote because i don't want to give her oxygen but um yeah she was also really doubting demi and we know that's not true in terms of the grammatically incorrect things like it just pisses me off when people try to use that as like an Mm. argument against using they them pronouns i'd really recommend following rainbow history class on tiktok and instagram they have really great resources and help break down these concepts yeah they're so great they came up on my for you page like I didn't follow them and now I really enjoy their content, obviously. So would definitely recommend that as well. In regards to them coming out as non-binary and the lack of support, Mm. part of me wonders, is it because of the frozen yoga incident Mm. that happened just a few weeks ago where they kind of trash talked a local family run frozen yoga shop? saying that to have diet cookies and low sugar yogurt were very triggering for their eating disorders and they were trying to kind of speak out against diet culture. That got a lot of people riled up this coming like three weeks after that Mm. incident. That makes me wonder, is that why they don't have enough support? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I see that. I didn't think about that before, but I do think a lot of the – criticism against Demi is because oh it's attention seeking they're only doing this yeah to get attention so that could feed into it um but I think it's quite sad that we have to be so critical of people who are choosing to do something brave Mm. and come out yeah I don't know even if that's what your thoughts are I think Maybe just keep them to yourself Mm. instead of saying this is attention seeking because I don't know, why would you, why would you come out to like millions of people on the internet when you already know it's a cruel Mm. place just for that little bit of attention? I don't think that is a thing. Like, especially after what they've been through with their, you know, addiction struggles and everything. I think that it's good, Mm. good for them. I also really like this article by Mary Emily O'Hara for NBC News and it was called Demi Lovato's non-binary revelation is important in more ways than one. Mary is non-binary so I think they wrote about this really eloquently and gave a personal insight. So I'll just read out the end paragraph. The whole thing is definitely worth a read but this really stood out for me. Demi Lovato's coming out video is powerful. They asserted their validity as a non-binary person while rocking a full set of false eyelashes and seriously popping lip gloss. 
Levada's femme sheen doesn't negate their expansive gender identity any more than Jonathan Van Ness's beard negates theirs. There is room for variety here, for evolution, for play and for growth. That's what being non-binary is all about. Yeah, love that. I also just had a thought as well. They are also one of the only Disney stars to come Mm. out as non-binary, right? Yeah. And I wonder if that they still have this, there's still this aura around them of being a Disney child star. And I think a lot of people, parents especially, even though they're not in Disney anymore, have this kind of ownership over Disney stars. And they feel like with the role model thing, they haven't been a role model like they haven't been in that child sphere for like years, mm. like 10 years now. So I wonder if that's why they've gotten more criticism as well, is that they were a Disney star. Yeah. What do you think? No, I agree. And it's so annoying that we conflate technically just a job profession. Being a Disney star is a job with someone's whole identity and what they have to live up to. Because at the end of the day, acting is also, yeah, just another job. Um, we don't expect... I don't know, like a retail worker to come home and still be super polite and have their hospo voice and face on. (laughs) Um, I obviously, yes, there are different levels of influence there at play, but especially when a lot of these Disney stars, they sign up or their parents sign them up from such a young age, there are no like, why do we have these constricting like binds Mm. on their wrists for the rest of their lives? Like we've seen like we've done an episode before, um, like the fall of the Disney stars and that sheen wears off. So it's like, why do we keep doing this? Yeah, and that also could add to the attention-seeking thing. Mm. We saw the way the mainstream media treated Miley and even Selena with all of her health issues. Like I feel like people are particularly more brutal towards Disney stars and child stars than they are to say someone like Elliot Page. Yeah, I just think we do have a lot of preconceptions about perhaps what a non-binary person should look like or be like or what a Disney star should be or should look like that it does sometimes just cloud um, our perception of someone right in front of us telling us who they want to be or who they are. Um who they are now mm. so as a grown adult exactly we should listen to them this week israel and palestine called a ceasefire after weeks of violence over 11 days of fighting 243 people including women and children were killed in gaza while 12 people including two children were killed in israel Jasmine and I are going to do our best to break down this more than a century old conflict to give context for this next segment. We've also linked a couple YouTube videos that we found helpful, which we've linked in our show notes. So as Maggie said, we have to give some historical context to explain the topic we want to talk about. During World War I, Britain took control of Palestine, which was a nation with a majority Arab population and a minority Jewish population. Britain was asked to set up a national home in Palestine for Jewish people specifically. So this was begun by the Zionism movement, which is basically an ideology that Judaism is both a nationality and a religion and therefore has a right to its own country. During the Holocaust, many Jewish people fled from Europe to Palestine due to anti-Semitism, and many Arab Palestinians believed that they were invader settlers. 
Tensions began to rise and the UN, which had just been established, said basically, okay, Palestine will be split into a Jewish state, which is Israel, an Arab state, which is Gaza and the West Bank, and then Jerusalem can be this international city. So the Arab Palestinians weren't happy with this agreement, um, mainly because of the fact that at that time there was about 1.2 million of them as opposed to like about 600,000 um, Jewish people. So Britain was kind of like, oh, we've done enough damage, we're going to yeet out of here and left the other two cultures to clean up the mess. Since then, there has been decades of conflict between the two groups. I also think we should define the politics of the situation. So Israel has a right-wing coalition government, whereas the West Bank has a political party called Fatah. But Gaza is ruled by Hamas, who is a democratically elected government. But the USA, Israel, UK and Australia consider them to be a terrorist organisation. So a few weeks ago, the Jerusalem District Court ordered six Palestinian families in the Sheikh Jarrah neighbourhood to leave their generational homes as Israelis began settling in the area. This is because of a law that states if a citizen can prove that a property was Jewish-owned before the 1948 Arab-Israel war, um, they can keep it. And this is where tensions have recently heightened because of a court case around this. Thousands of Palestinians protested this, and as Israeli military began aggressions on the ground, Hamas sent Israel 100 rockets, and then Israel fought back by dropping an air raid on Gaza. While both groups were fighting, it's important to note that Israel has advanced military defense, including something called an Iron Dome, which is a piece of equipment that can intercept rockets and destroy them when they're fired into their space. So it's a bit of uneven fighting ground happening. Since the fighting began, a few celebrities, in particular Gigi and Bella Hadid, have been speaking out against the Israel government. It's important to note they haven't been speaking out against the people or Judaism as religion. They are talking about this as their grandparents were Palestinian refugees, so they're very passionate about this topic. So after that long-winded but important background context, it takes us to this New York Times ad, which we saw through Diet Prada. So the New York Times ran a full-page ad condemning Gigi, Bella and Dua Lipa for speaking out. So in the Saturday edition of the New York Times, an organization called the World Values Network ran the ad with a headline stating, Hamas calls for a second holocaust, condemn them now. And the main theme of the ad was suggesting that supporting Palestine was anti-Semitic. So we did some background research, of course, into this organization. And the World Values Network is an American group who on their website state, Their mission is to disseminate universal Jewish values in politics, culture, and media, making the Jewish people a light unto the nations. It is our belief that Judaism, with its unique emphasis on perfecting the world and celebrating life, can benefit America against some of the greatest challenges of our time, including high rates of divorce, teen alienation, depression, and growing ignorance and materialism. When I went on to the main homepage of their website there is a big banner also saying the same thing that ad is saying basically calling these celebrities terrorists so i think what was really painful about this was that they were inflating supporting 
Palestine with being anti-Semitic because anti-Semitism is actually such a massive mm-hmm. issue. Um, and during this time, it's true, they mention it in the ad that hate crimes against Jewish people have increased across the world. So for instance, in the UK, um, there's been roughly a 400% increase in anti-Semitic attacks. So this is not something to speak mm-hmm. lightly of, but to conflate this issue with this kind of minimizes both mm. issues exactly and i think the hadid sisters through this whole thing have said we are not condemning jewish people we are not being anti-semitic we are just standing with palestinians and their rights in the ad rabbi shmuley Botich, who is the head of this organization called the models and singer three mega influencers who have accused israel of ethnic cleansing and vilified the jewish state On their homepage, the World Values Network said, while Israel is under attack by thousands of terror missiles, the supermodels Bella and Gigi Hadid and pop singer Dua Lipa have formed an unholy trinity of anti-Semitic bile to demonize the Jewish people, whom they insist have no right to defend themselves. Speaking to their nearly 100 million followers on social media, they have vilified the Jewish state with an all-consuming hatred. So, like, very, very emotive, angry words. That's on their website, I should say. That's not in the New York Times ad, Um, but it's the same organization. I am shocked. Sorry, I didn't see that. And just the fact that an organization has, yes, actually, they even stated, like, they've literally chosen to go after three supermodels is just so, so just out of the woods to me. Yeah, well, they have all three of them have been quite vocal on social media, especially Bella. She, you know, is posting pictures from her protests in New York and things like that. But that doesn't give them any, you know, right to just like attack them in the New York Times. Like it's pretty crazy. So Dua Lipa responded on her Instagram story saying, I utterly reject the false and appalling allegations that were published today in the New York Times advertisement taken out by the World Values Network. This is the price you pay for defending Palestinian human rights against an Israeli government whose actions in Palestine, both Human Rights Watch and the Israeli human rights group Beit Selem, accuse of persecution and discrimination. She continues, I take this stance because I believe that everyone, Jews, Muslims and Christians, have the right to live in peace as equal citizens of a state they choose. The World Values Network are shamelessly using my name to advance their ugly campaign with falsehoods and blatant misrepresentations of who I am and what I stand for. I stand in solidarity with all oppressed people and reject all forms of racism. And I saw like throughout this week, every time the Hadid post like on Gigi's Instagram feed, she even has responded to comments of people calling her anti-Semitic or anti-Semite. And she said like days, days ago, like when they first started talking about this, that they don't want to put any hatred towards Jewish people. Like this isn't about Jewish people or the religion. It's the whole situation that we just try to give context to, you know, Israel and Palestine, etc. In the Diet Prada Post, a reporter from the White House, Scott Bixby, compared the ad um, in the New York Times to the Central Park Five ad where Donald Trump paid for an ad to call for five black young men to be executed for the rape of a white woman in New York in 1989. The 
group were later exonerated just by DNA, but still there was this very politically charged ad in the New York Times. While you can't really compare three wealthy white women to five young black boys, the situation of this independent organization paying for this politically charged ad in the New York Times remains the same, doesn't it? Mm. And it's something that we have seen a lot more of, um, the, I guess, blurred lines of advertorial sponsorships and journalism. So do you think publications like the New York Times have a right to remain impartial and then not run these political ads? It's a big question because we both work in the media industry and we know that, of course, you need dollars and profits for it to um, be run. And a lot of the time, you know, it is from paid ads that the media industry gets its revenue. And I don't think we're expecting news publications to stay impartial. We don't just look to journalism for uh, facts Mm -hmm. and figures. We look to them for opinions and perspectives. But, of course, it gets so messy when politics and things like this come into play. You and I have both had to do advertorial content in our career so far um, where we know that a client is paying for exposure or for, you know, a mention in a piece. But I think there's a big difference between knowing a publication needs ads to run and survive in this media landscape versus putting out this, like, really really bad narrative and attacking three young women like yes they have power they have wealth but they're like 25 24 you know like the young women who are standing up for what they think is right and for a publication like the new york times to run a smear campaign i think is so shocking really i think this is really big news in my eyes I also found it so interesting that this ad only featured these young women under 25 who were speaking out. They didn't mention Mark Ruffalo, his tweets. They didn't mention Roger Waters, Zane, obviously Gigi's husband, um, The Weeknd, or Bella and Gigi's brother, Anwar, and Jewel's boyfriend, Anwar. He's also been speaking out not mm. as um, much as Bella and Gigi, but still, they have said things. They have said Zane's been saying free Palestine since like 2014, you know. So I found that very I, – I know it's just because they have bigger platforms and they're probably more influential than those men I just mentioned. But I think it is, yeah, so fascinating. Yeah, and the New York Times didn't have to accept that. They could have like took a stand and not, and not accepted this, but they didn't. And you pulled out this tweet that read, They just published a really insightful article by a Palestinian-American journalist documenting her family's personal history of displacement and loss at the hands of Israeli occupation. But of course, let's erase all that with paid propaganda. That'll balance things out. Yeah, I feel like that tweet summed up so well of like, if you're going to run these ads next to an opinion piece about why, you know, this person's family has been displaced it just really for me anyway it like erases all of that work it's not like they gathered two different opinions and they they Mm. commissioned two different stories with like one person from israel one person from palestine and they're saying their personal experiences with this awful awful conflict but it was one person's story about their family and a paid ad like they're very very different things 
for them to pay. They must have paid thousands of dollars for that, I'm guessing. I don't even know. Lots of money to be in the New York Times. And it was uh, like in the main section as well. It's important to note. This isn't just like Mm. in the back of the TV guide. This is like the Saturday edition of one of the biggest newspapers in the world at the front of it. And they're saying Hamas calls for a second Holocaust, you know. So I think that tweet really sums it up. It's so whack. Um, I think the more we talk about it, I just realised how ludicrous it was to have an ad literally um, attacking these three women. I just find it so, so strange. And, and yeah, I really don't know how that got approved. Yeah. So what will happen now? If I was the Hadid sisters, I would sue the New York Times. Yeah, and they probably have the money for exactly. it. Exactly. The, the three of them combined, their net worth would definitely outweigh the New York Times. So can you imagine, though, like being around that Saturday brunch table, like they've got their newspapers, little Kai's there, <laughs> like Zane and White, like all of them are sitting there and then they just see mm. this ad like attacking them, calling them terrorists. Like how weird would that be? Good on them all for speaking out, I think. They have so much influence and power and they are young and, you know, as a result, I think more people will just be educated on this topic. Okay, Jasmine, what are you recommending us this week? Running on from our last segment, something that I watched this week that really, really helped me was a Vox YouTube explainer on the Israel-Palestine conflict. It's called A Brief Simple History. It goes for 10 minutes and it just sums up how we got to where we are in the 21st century. This was published in January of 2016, so it doesn't explain the most recent conflict but it does give a lot of context and history and explains the area really well which is something that I don't know about you but I didn't learn about all this in school or I don't remember Mm. learning about it um and I think having the visual explainer is so so good because I was trying to piece together bits and pieces of information from news sources like the Daily Oz, Al Jazeera, um, the BBC. So like I was trying to go for those more like reputable news sources while also looking at the infographics that were going around on Instagram. And in my head, I was getting really like overwhelmed by all of the little pieces. I was trying to like a puzzle trying to put together. And this video just summed up the conflict really well. So if you were wanting to learn more about the history of the area and the conflict, I would definitely recommend that. Perfect. You sent this to me as well and I watched it and I found it super helpful. It's just 10 minutes um, and explains that very succinctly and clearly um, and I think engages both sides of the issue very well. Yeah, I think in times like this, well-researched pieces of a journalism like this are so important. Yeah, and while I think Instagram infographics have a place, I don't think they should be our only news source. And I think you should always fact check them and remember that they're coming from like an independent person's brain. Whereas videos like this have dedicated researchers and teams and historians and everything to go through and meticulously check all the information. So I think just be careful with what you're reading and we're all learning. Go watch that if you're interested. Vox is just such a great platform anyway. I love all the journalism. So yeah, that's mine. What are you recommending this week? 
I'm recommending something from quite a while back, actually. It's an article that was published in 2018. Um, it is called Meet the McCallums, One of Australia's Few Amish Families. It was by Melissa Fife and it was for the Sydney Morning Herald. So I actually found this on Instagram when content creator Tara Chandra shared it on her story because when she was in Tasmania, she was actually sold some baked goods from one of the Amish girls and she um, was Googling and found this piece. So this is kind of a left field recommendation, but I loved this piece. I have a soft spot for um, long form journalism and I really do appreciate uh, like long form feature pieces. And this really allowed readers to be curious about the lifestyles of the Amish without being overly judgmental or overly critical. Do you know much about Amish people? Not really, to be honest, just that they... I'm generalizing, but they don't have electricity and they have like very old ideologies in terms of like the way they live, like old industries and stuff. That's basically all I knew. And I think um, in our modern pop culture landscape, they're usually just like the butt of jokes, Mm. you know, like, oh, this is like an Amish outfit or whatever it might be. Um, And in this, um, Melissa, I think she just built like a really great, connection with the family so she did respectfully gain the trust of them and in return we as a reader gain a really intimate look and understanding about this little known religious group um you're right they uh, like they don't have a car so they ride like they have a horse that drags the carriage oh sorry I literally don't know mm-hmm. any of these words um or one of the things one of the passages that stood out for me was you know they've got like a lot of children think like sound of music vibes um and they have like a little girl like under the age of 10 and they're all doing the chores all respectfully um and then the like little girl goes up to their parents be like like mommy daddy like anything else you want me to do and then she's like, shall I like slaughter the chicken? Mm. <laughs> like literally the author's literally like outside in the garden, like they're just, you know, slaughtering the animals. Um, it was just quite, it was quite a culture shock. Um, sorry, vegetarian jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I think she just like as a writer, I think that was really great writing to read. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed, really enjoyed this mm, one. That sounds so good. I would really like to read that. I'm going to read that tonight. It's pretty long. No, I find that so fascinating, like the fact that they're still like living like it's the 1800s. It's so, so interesting. Um, yes. Um, well, thanks for the chat, Jazz, and thanks listeners for tuning in. Yeah, thank you everyone for listening. And of course, thanks again to Period Care Brand Scarlet for sponsoring our episode. Don't forget to find and follow the Instagram account at We Are Scarlet, and you could maybe even try out some period products for yourself. All right. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye.